0: this episode was recorded in a routine microbiology laboratory unlike other microbe male episodes you may hear the sounds of some happy microbiology laboratory staff in the background thanks for understanding According to the World Health Organization, lower respiratory tract infections are still the world's most fatal communicable disease. Amongst the top 10 causes of death, it ranked fourth. CAP, specifically, is one of the most common infections managed by clinicians in their daily practice. It is also an important cause of morbidity and mortality. Despite how common it is and the availability of robust guideline documents, there's sometimes variation in practice or even guideline non-compliance. This episode of Microbe Mail, we'll be talking through some tips and tricks in the management of patients with suspected community acquired pneumonia. Hi, I'm Vindana Chibabai, the host of Microbe Mail. My guest today is Erica Shaddock. Erica is a pulmonologist and she's based at the Charlotte Maxeke Johannesburg Academic Hospital in Johannesburg, South Africa. Hi, Erica. Welcome to Microbe Mail. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks for having me. Remember to sign up for updates at our website or follow us on social media or on YouTube. Share the micro-male love by forwarding to colleagues and friends and leave us a review on podchaser.com. Listen wherever podcasts are found, on YouTube or directly on our website. All the links are available in the show notes. So, Erika, shall we cough straight into this episode? Sure, why don't we? So, as with the diagnosis of any disease or clinical syndrome, the clinical signs and symptoms noted on examination are crucial. Can you tell us what the differences are between community acquired pneumonia and acute bronchitis, one of the most common syndromes misdiagnosed as pneumonia? Thanks for the question.
1: I think it's very important, um, expect, probably with any disease, but especially with community acquired pneumonia, that when you are approaching the patient, you always ask yourself, what could this be other than community acquired pneumonia to make sure that you don't miss, um, a, a diagnosis? And, and whilst these are usually things with acute cough and dyspnea, there are many illnesses that have cough and dyspnea as their presenting complaints. And you don't want to miss a lung cancer or heart failure or COPD, for instance. So always just keep an open mind. When it comes to the most um, obvious um, condition that would be uh, confused with community-acquired pneumonia, we're probably talking about acute bronchitis. And the reason that it's so important to differentiate between the two is acute bronchitis is usually a a viral illness and therefore does not need antibiotics. So from a stewardship point of view, you don't want to be giving unnecessary antibiotics. So when we do clinical studies, we have quite set criteria for diagnosing community-acquired pneumonia. We'll discuss these now. Um, And these are ones that they use in clinical trials. So not necessarily something we're gonna use in our daily practice, but it's, it's a good place to start. So, for, to make an official diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia, you need the presence of all three of the following. So, firstly, um, signs and symptoms. So, you need two of the following. Cough, dyspnea, a pleuritic chest pain, a tachypnea, maybe a respiratory rate of greater than 30, hypoxia, um, or a PAO two of less than 60, and then auscultatory findings of pneumonia, crackles, um, decreased breath sounds, um, dullness on percussion, etc. Then you need a new or an increased infiltrate on a chest x-ray or a CT scan. And lastly, you need either a very high or very low temperature or a high or very low white cell count. So you need all three of those criteria to diagnose um, community-acquired pneumonia. Now, if we were to compare this to acute bronchitis, which importantly is usually a self-limiting inflammation of the large airways, um, you would still have often cough and dyspnea, and this cough and dyspnea episode usually occurs seasonally. These are usually occurring in autumn or winter, Um, and these patients can cough for, on average, about five days, but it can be up to four weeks, and patients need to be reminded of this if if you do diagnose acute bronchitis. Um, Patients could even have lung function changes with this acute bronchitis, but it, it doesn't mean that it needs antibiotics. So what is important is that these patients usually are missing um, the bedside signs of a inflammatory response. So they usually have no fever, no tachycardia, no tachypnea. And you can feel relatively comfortable if your patient is missing those signs, but has cough and dyspnea. And if you have done a chest x-ray, a clear chest x-ray, but you don't necessarily need that, that the patient rather has an acute bronchitis rather than a community-acquired pneumonia.
0: Thanks, Erika. So... Yes, I've gone through that experience not so long ago with you, and you're absolutely right. I coughed for much more than four weeks. I think it actually went on for about six weeks. So as a clinician, if I had to suspect a community-acquired pneumonia, I'm probably going to request a chest x-ray. So how sensitive is the chest x-ray for the diagnosis of CAP?
1: I'm sorry to disappoint everybody, but unfortunately, um, a chest x-ray can have quite low sensitivity. Um, If you just go on clinical criteria alone, um, the accuracy is also quite low, and a systematic review has shown that with a typical combination of symptoms and signs, you can be sure of your diagnosis only approximately 50% of the time. But that said, that if you have a patient who's presenting to you with these signs, and normal vital signs, as remarked on before, they're very low risk of pneumonia, and you could probably rule out your cap without a chest X-ray. Um, In various clinical studies, the sensitivity of a plain chest X-ray is ranges from thirty eight to seventy six percent. Wow, which is which is very low. Yeah, what is good news and something that our younger colleagues are probably going to have in their pockets in the future is that the sensitivity of ultrasound is excellent at making the diagnosis of pneumonia and we're looking at about 80 to 90 percent in detecting pneumonia so i think in the future the large majority of pneumonias are going to be diagnosed in ultrasound findings and that can easily be done these days with these new handheld ultrasounds in the rooms or in the emergency room if you have a normal chest x-ray but you're very concerned that it could still be community acquired pneumonia there is this concept of the pneumonia blossoming out, mm-hmm. um, which sometimes people feel is because patients are often dehydrated and therefore the inflammation hasn't had the amount of time to occur. So repeat the chest x-ray in 48 hours and do the lateral. Often it's hiding there on the lateral um, in the lower zone that you didn't fully appreciate on your on your PA film. So not the be-all and end-all, your chest x-ray with quite low sensitivity, but there is hope on the horizon with ultrasounds. And repeat
0: the x-ray if you're that concerned. So that's quite helpful. So maybe in the future, clinicians are going to be walking around with stethoscopes and handheld ultrasound. I think they will be. And in certain parts of the US, that is already happening. Yeah, so it's a matter of time. So still on diagnostics then, Erica. What about laboratory diagnostics to confirm CAP? When is a microbiological diagnosis by respiratory sample recommended? So this would be either sputum, tracheal aspirate, or bronchoalveolar fluid. And when is a blood culture actually needed?
1: Okay. Now, I know we always harp on with everybody about getting blood cultures done before antibiotics are started. But surprisingly, um, most guidelines are going to recommend not obtaining routine sputum or blood cultures in an outpatient setting. They're not indicated at all. Mm-hmm. And then in the inpatient setting, um, you can consider them. Again, there is still low sensitivity because the bulk of patients will have these tests done after they have their first dose of antibiotics. Mm. But the guidelines suggest considering doing a sputum MCNS or blood culture in hospitalized patients if it's a severe community-acquired pneumonia, um, so a curb score of greater than 2, or if the patient is intubated. And then in that group of patients who you are either empirically treating for MRSA or in Pseudomonas, um, or this patient has previously had MRSA and Pseudomonas, okay. or this patient was admitted and received IV antibiotics in the last 90 days, so we're basically trying to locate those patients who are unlikely to have the usual organisms that we suspect. Um, in a community-acquired pneumonia, and that potentially would not respond to the, empiric, the typical empiric antibiotics we give them. That's what we're trying to find. Right. We're not looking for the strep pneumonia patient that we know is going is to, going to have respond one. to the antibiotics we're going to give them. It's those other patients. So those are the, the patients you want to do those cultures. And otherwise, it really is, unfortunately, quite a big waste of money. Absolutely. And kind
0: of speaks to the concept of diagnostic stewardship. Definitely. So then what about the use of biomarkers to differentiate between CAP and acute bronchitis? Okay. So
1: I'm a massive fan of biomarkers. Um, So some of this will have my um, own personal opinion, but I can also tell you what guidelines suggest. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm specifically going to talk about the South African guidelines. So the South African guidelines say that routine measurement of CRP or PCT, which is procalcitonin, when the diagnosis is not in doubt, is not encouraged. So very similar to the whole approach with your pro BNP for cardiac failure. If you know your patient has cardiac failure, you don't need the pro BNP. Mm -hmm. Um, So the South African guidelines are suggesting that if you're not sure, then maybe the CRP and PCT would help. Um, But they also say in the next breath that it is also useful for response to therapy. And unfortunately, if you haven't done that CRP initially, you're not going to be able to see the response to therapy. So that is where I think the CRP and PCT is incredibly useful is in the response to therapy. Because in the first, you know, 48, 72 hours, you really should start seeing a rapid decline in your PCT um, and therefore know that your antibiotics are appropriate. So... It's also very useful in the emergency department and the GP practice office, where if, again, your diagnosis is in doubt, A lot of these tests are becoming available as point of care tests and you then have your patient oh is this acute bronchitis or is this a cap and you can do a point of care pct or crp and if that's elevated it would then help you to decide to give the antibiotics or more importantly if it's low to not give the antibiotics and so very useful from an antibiotic um, stewardship point of view uh, PCT is controversial and that's mainly because um, the reported sensitivity to detect bacterial infection ranges widely in the literature, anywhere from 38 to 91%. So it is, they, these, these tests do not replace clinical acumen and they should be used with clinical acumen in, in, in mind, um, but they can be helpful in those borderline cases and then definitely in response to therapy.
0: Okay, yeah, that's very helpful as well. Okay, so shall we move on to treatment then? Sure. Let's talk about antibiotic choices and the duration of therapy. So what's very important with regards to
1: antibiotic choices is it depends where you are working. And um, again, you can look up your local community um pneumonia guidelines or your you know the the country you're in or even your specific hospital could be different so i'm going to again discuss as per the south african guidelines and they want to specifically to take into account where your patient is being treated are they at home are they at hospital how old are they again have they had previous antibiotics in the last 90 days are they allergic to anything specifically um, and are there any comorbidities. Again, the point is to get that antibiotic right the first time around, looking for those patients who may not respond to our empiric treatment. And to always consider, does this patient fit the clinical profile of, say, a patient with influenza or pneumocystis pneumonia, that you would want to maybe consider starting those treatments as well. So that's just something to take into account. But when we are giving the initial antibiotics, the South African guidelines suggests that in the outpatient setting, In a patient who is younger than 65 with no comorbidities, we can just use high-dose oral amoxicillin as our first choice um, for patients with community-acquired pneumonia. Um, And once you now have a patient who's over 65 who has received antibiotics in the last 90 days, then you need to start with an oral amoxicillin clavulanic acid or even an oral second-generation Keflosporin. So that's outpatient management in your patient who's not that sick. Okay. Once your patient requires admission, um, you then are going to use intravenous antibiotics. And again, um, if your patient is less than 65 without antibiotic exposure, no comorbidities, you can just use IV ampicillin or penicillin at high doses if it is available. We often have problems with availability of these um, older cheaper drugs. Um, if those aren't available, you would then use um, amoxicillin clavulanic. But you could get away with amoxicillin penicillin. Um, ampicillin penicillin if you are... Um, can access it. Can access it, yeah. If your patient is older than 65, again, received antibiotics in the last 90 days, has comorbidities, then you would start with um, IV amoxicillin clavulanic. Or again, a second or third generation cephalosporin, depending on what you have available. When it comes to those with severe pneumonia, they would then receive again IV amoxicillin-clavulanic, or a second or third generation cephalosporin plus a macrolide antibiotic. And in this case, we're using the macrolide antibiotic not as an antibiotic treatment, but for um, uh, immune modulation, specifically biofilm interference, uh, you know, decreasing your neutrophils, etc. Et so that's why in the very severe patients, we would give both of those drugs. Very important. Antibodies should be administered early, um, preferably in the emergency room while the patient's waiting to go upstairs. But that often doesn't always happen, unfortunately. Right. Yeah.
0: And then what about IV to oral switching and duration of antibiotics? At what point is that appropriate? So we are very bad at this in the hospital setting.
1: Um, We don't always check our charts on a daily basis. But once your patient has been settled and hemodynamically stable and apyrexial for over 24 hours, you can switch the oral, I mean the IV amoxicillin clavulanic to oral amoxicillin clavulanic. The bioavailability of the majority of these antibiotics is excellent. Mm So switch, please do. You know, then we don't have to worry about line sepsis, the expense of the line and the fluid that is going. And then often your patient can go home Mm a lot earlier. And again, that saves costs. Uh, When it comes to duration of treatment, um, again, guidelines are suggesting five to seven days in your patient who is uncomplicated. And as evidence comes out, um, this is getting shortened and shortened. Um, The most recent evidence come out is that in children three is three days of antibiotics is as good as five days That's in a community-acquired pneumonia. The adult data is still coming, but I don't think you should feel worried if you're only giving your patient five days of antibiotics if they're uncomplicated. You know, it depends what bug you've cultured, and if you have cultured something unusual like a staph aureus then you
0: need 14 days, but usually five days is enough. Okay. And then are there any differences... Any further differences between inpatient and outpatient management of CAP? Not really, other than to decide
1: where you're going to put your patient and if you are going to admit them or not. And that is often a difficult decision to make. So we use different scoring systems for this. Um, We most often use the CURB-65 Um, which is the easiest, which stands for confusion, um, urea, respiratory rate, blood pressure in the age of 65. So if the urea is greater than 7, if the respiratory rate is greater than 30, or the systolic blood pressure is less than 90 or diastolic less than 60, um, and the age is greater than 65, depending on that, you would get a a score. So the maximum score you would get is out of 5. And just to illustrate how that is useful is if your score is zero out of five, your mortality is 0.7% versus a score of five and your mortality pushes up to 40%. Mm. So it gives you an idea of which patients are going to do worse and therefore need to be admitted. The other very useful score, which we didn't use a lot in the past, um, is the pneumonia severity index or the PSI. And it was a very complicated scoring system with over 20 questions, and none of us would remember all of those. Mm. But now that we all have apps and phones, it's very easy to um, punch that into your calculator on your phone. And so you can then get a PSI, which is a class 1, where your mortality is sitting at 0.1% versus a class 5 of 27%. So again, helping you decide if this is my patient, she's going to do badly or not. Right. So a person with a corpse score of 0.1% potentially can go home and be managed um, with oral antibiotics um, versus those that have three or above should really probably go to ICU straight if possible and you have those resources. Uh, I just want to make out that that even if your patient only has a CURB score of one and they've got a CURB score of one because their respiratory rate is greater than 30... This is not necessarily a patient you would send home. So it's not a be-all and end-all, oh, the right. third score is one, they must go home. You know, yes. certain of those Criteria. clinical signs would still allow you to admit the patient. Sure. So don't don't see it
0: as a hard and fast rule. Okay, so say I follow all of the above recommendations, as you've suggested, and I find that my patient isn't responding, Mm -hmm. what do I do then? Okay.
1: So as I mentioned earlier, patients should be responding in 48 to 72 hours. And if they're not, I think the most important thing is to go back and make sure you've got the correct diagnosis. Or have you missed something else? Does the patient have a pyelonephritis, pancreatitis, cholecystitis, or something else that is causing the systemic response that potentially may be causing a response in the lower response in the lower portion of the lungs just because it's just below the diaphragm but not necessarily an ammonia so get the diagnosis right first if you are still sure that your diagnosis is correct go and make sure your patient is getting the correct antibiotics at the correct dose at the correct time there is unfortunately a culture of um in, in, the, in the nursing staff that if a drip is down or the antibiotic isn't available, they seem relatively comfortable to write out of stock or no drip and they not let anybody know about it. Yeah. And your patient potentially hasn't had antibiotics for 48 hours. Yeah. So always make sure that the patient is getting the right dose at the right time um, and has received that drug. If all of those boxes are ticked, then go make sure your patient has now developed a complication of the community-acquired pneumonia had they not gone on to develop an empyema that now needs to be drained. Right. They don't have a lung abscess, again, that needs to be drained, um, or even a parenchymal effusion. So you need to go and find the complications that need further intervention to ensure that the antibiotics you're giving the patient are actually um, working.
0: Right. Okay. So to review all of these treatment recommendations, we've added a link to the South African Guideline for Management of CAP in adults in our show notes. So listeners, you can access it over there. And then Erica, not something that we always explicitly discuss in infectious diseases, but something we always try and address on our micro male episodes. And that is whether there are any gender differences to consider when managing community acquired pneumonia. I
1: think what COVID-19 um, has taught us is that there are gender differences that I think a lot of us weren't aware of with obviously our male patients doing worse with COVID-19. And, and the same seems to be true with community-acquired pneumonia. Um, a recent study that came out of Italy and Spain, which we could probably link to in the show notes, mm-hmm. um, also showed that community-acquired pneumonia is more severe in male than female male patients with a higher mortality in males, especially in the older age. And um, the study wasn't able to give us a good idea of why, but there's always this concern that that female patients or, or, or women tend to seek um, medical treatment earlier than men, often, and we know yeah. that from other diseases yeah. like HIV, HIV. diabetes, etc. Yeah. So, is that the reason that the men are doing badly, or is this an actual a genetic, predetermined hormonal reason for that? Yeah. So, um, the, the watch this watch the space; the studies are going to start coming out maybe explain that a bit more in the future.
0: That would be helpful. And then it's also interesting that health-seeking behavior has come up fairly often as a cause for gender differences and and definitely something we need to consider for managing CAP. So before we move on to our spotlight feature, Erica, and I hope you're ready for that today. Mm, Not really, but sure, yeah. (laughs) So my last question relates to something quite topical in the world at the moment, although more, more related to COVID than CAP is what is the role of vaccination in prevention of community-acquired pneumonia?
1: Um, What is very important, again, the South African guidelines um, stress this, is that vaccination needs to be seen as a key pillar to antibiotic stewardship. And if we can vaccinate our patients and prevent infections, we can prevent um, these patients from requiring antibiotics or getting given the wrong antibiotics. So I am a, um, a very pro-vaxxer, if there is that existing. Absolutely. Um, and influenza vaccinations yearly for everybody, especially those who are immune-compromised. And then we have the pneumococcal vaccine available. Now, currently, um, there is widespread use of the um pneumococcal vaccine in the pediatric EPI guidelines, Mm -hmm. which has meant that there's actually been a significant decline in the adult um, emergence of those serotypes covered in that vaccination, because the kids are vaccinated. So that's one bonus of that. When it comes to adult vaccination, there are still adults who should be vaccinated. So in adults who are older than 50, we would recommend vaccination, um, anybody over the age of fifty should receive a single dose of the conjugated vaccine, or Prevnar thirteen as it's called. Um, if this particular person over fifty has previously received a polysaccharide vaccine, or the pneumovac vaccine, this you should then suggest a Prevnar thirteen a year after that. Um, polysaccharide vaccine so it's very important to try and get the conjugated vaccine into this patient who yeah. are over than 50 but again if they've had the polysaccharide there must be a year gap between the two okay in adults who are older than 65 who are vaccine naive again we start with the Prevnar 13 followed a year later by the pneumococcal vaccine and um, the polysaccharide the pneumovac and then you know Right now, that would be repeated every five years. You only ever give the Prevnar 13 once and then the Pneumovac every five years. Potentially, those guidelines would change. We're not sure if we're going to have to keep repeating it. But for now, yeah. you would for every five years. If your patient who's older than 65 has already received a polysaccharide vaccine or the Pneumovac, again, you wait a year um, to give them the Prevnar 13 and then going forward, they would repeat their polysaccharide every five years. But but very, very important um, in our older population as immune senescence and, um, you know, their vulnerability to infections becomes so much more.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Okay. So, Erica, before I ask you for your take-home message, we're going to move on to our spotlight feature. And we're playing a game. Mm-hmm. And this game is called Name Changes or Game Changes. So a, we're sending out a big shout out to Dr. Michael LaGrange. He's one of our regular listeners. And he submitted this game idea to Microbe Mail. So now taxonomists are notorious for changing microbe names. And they have actually been a fair number of these name changes recently. So in this game, I'm going to give you the new name of a microbe and I'm going to ask you to tell me what the old name was. So as always on Microbe Mail, our winning guests get a microbe named after them. Yay. Are you ready? Oh, as ready as I'm ever going to be, I suppose. <laughs> okay, so we're going to do best of three. Your first microbe, the new name is QT bacterium acnes. Okay. Can you remember what the old name was. I really think they should stop
1: changing names. Just as we figured out them, they give them a new name. But uh, I think that one was probably the probiobacterium acnes before.
0: Propionibacterium. That one, yes. (laughs) Okay, completely understandable. The clinicians see the names written down, but don't get a chance to practice pronouncing them. And your second one is Klebsiella erogenes. That's the new name. So Mm -hmm. the old name was... Uh, that one is probably Enterobacter aerogenes Absolutely that's correct So you're two out of three At the moment And your last one I can barely say The new name myself But it is now called Pichia kudriavzevii. Okay, Yeah it doesn't even Really sound like It's in English <laughs> fin. I have no idea Shouldn't even be A microbe <laughs> <No>. name <laughs> So that is the Old Candida Cruzii And quite a Tongue twister to yes. It's become But you've got Two out of three but yeah. That's brilliant well done. Your new name in the microbe male world is Erica bacterium shadokanis. Excellent. Hopefully, yeah, I'm a fungus or something. <laughs> you can start signing your prescriptions <laughs> exactly. with that now. <laughs> okay, brilliant. So, Erica, lastly, can you give us a brief take home message about cap management? Sure. So, I think it's important that this is a common
1: condition. You're going to see these often. They're not these, um, you know, zebras that we all learn about in medical school like Wilson's disease. So have a good approach to this. Know what you can and can't do. Um, Don't miss the pneumonia, but also don't give unnecessary antibiotics. Um, Antibiotic stewardship is part of all of our jobs. And um, if we want to have any antibiotics left in the future, we all have to take responsibility for um, good prescribing. So, you know, rather than you know, trying to make sure everybody's covered, you've got to work very hard to make sure this acute bronchitis that is sitting in front of you is not actually, a, 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 is not an ammonia um, because it's still most likely to be acute bronchitis and, and don't over-diagnose that. But if you're worried and your patient's got systemic side effects or systemic symptoms, and then you're more likely to have CAP and, and then treat the patient.
0: Absolutely, that's excellent. Erica, this was an amazing discussion. Thank you so much for joining Microbe Mail. And I hope you'll be able to join us again sometime soon. Sure. It'd be
1: great. Thanks, Vin.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love to get your feedback by email, on social media, or even on YouTube. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a guest or suggest a topic, send us an email at mail.microbe at gmail.com. That's it for me, Vin, your Microbe Messenger. See you again soon with more Contagious Mail.